Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to learn what you would have us to learn from this chapter and guide and lead us through your Holy Spirit. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 31. We might finish the book tonight. Uh, it's only, only 13 verses. So starting at verse 1. Uh, remember David has, uh, was going to go into march with the Philistines into battle. He was sent back. They got to Ziglag. They found that it had been burnt, burnt down. He went and rescued his stuff. And that's where we left the story off at that time. And now we're going back to the battle. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishah, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded by the, of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through therefore, therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. All right. Here we see the end of Saul. Uh, Saul has been made king. He was made, and if you remember, he was made king. And does anybody remember why he was made king? God picked him, but why? He was, head, he was head and shoulders. He, he, stood up, he stood out amongst the crowd. He was a big, tall man. Uh, and that was why they wanted somebody who would be a good leader. Well, he made a good, good target for the archers as well. Uh, and it says, The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. This battle that David was going to go in was going to be the final battle. And David was protected by God. God actually worked on these Philistines' hearts to send them away. Could you imagine what it would have been like for David to go into this battle to kill those that he's supposed to be king over? Now, and I think because of David's attitude about that whole thing, I think he was getting a little bitter. Now, one of the things that's interesting when we wait for God, sometimes while we're waiting, it's a real hard thing to stay faithful to God and it becomes very easy to get bitter and just say, God, I'm tired of waiting. When are you going to do something? We look at somebody like Abraham and Sarah. You know, in, his eight, in, in their 80s, Sarah decided, you know, okay, Abraham, you know, God, God is not giving us a child, so you go lay with Hagar and, and it will be credited as my child, not God's plan. All right? Another, another decade later, all of a sudden, God says, okay, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. And they both basically laughed. Yeah, you're going to give us a child. You know, uh, matter of fact, you're going to give Sarah a child. She is past menstruation. She's past midlife. She's past, she's past post-midlife. You know, you know, uh, and she laughs. And God gives her a child. And 
in the same process of giving Abraham a child later on, if you remember when Sarah dies, Abraham takes a concubine and has another six, uh, six sons. Okay. When God made his work, he did it, he did it really well. Uh, but, you know, we see here how much trouble do we sometimes get when it's, uh, God says to just wait. Because he usually does not do things in the time that we want it done in. You know, and we, we do this all, all the time. We've all done this. God, I, I want this, and I really want it yesterday. You know, I want it now. And God says, just wait. You know, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. You're, you're told this when you're 40 or 50, or even younger. 60, 70, 80, 90. You know, pushing 100. And all of a sudden, they get their child. When it was beyond human capacity. And that's exactly why God waits. He wants us to be absolutely sure that it's him that has done it. If you read a lot of these biographies that we read, these people get a call in their lifetime, and then they do a whole bunch of stuff other than what it is they were called to do in many cases so that God can teach them to be ready, teach them things they need to learn. Many times, these guys don't even get started until they're 40, 50, 60 years old. Yeah. We're never too old for God to start the work with us that he's called us to do. And it's just a matter of being patient and letting him work. Israel is in battle. Men are dying. This, and in verse 2, it says, The Philistines followed hard after Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan, Abinadab, and Mechishah, Saul's sons. Does anybody know how many sons Saul had in all? He has six sons in all. Okay? He has four sons from, from the one wife, and he has two sons from a concubine. So he's got six sons in all. Three of them die in this battle. The rest, I believe, were probably younger, because they're going to get manipulated by people in, in, first, in 2 Samuel 2. Uh, they're either very weak or easily or very young because we're not really told the ages. Uh, but his three oldest sons die. And this is going to be really bad news for, for David because he really, you know, David and Jonathan are best of friends. All right. And remember, we, we saw the case where Jonathan says, OK, here's my cloak. Here, you know, here's my coat. Here's my sword. Here's my arrow. I'm, you know, you are going to be the next king. I'm not laying claim to it. You know, Jonathan had quite a heart. I, I, I'm really sad that Jonathan has to die for all of this to happen. And as I've said, he really did have to die because he was so noble of character that people would have wanted him to be king and probably would have tried to force the issue. And he was going to, if he had lived, give it to David. And I think God understood there couldn't, that couldn't happen that could not happen and that Jonathan had to die. You know, and this is something that is really hard for us to understand sometimes. Why do certain, certain things have to die? And God says, you know, it is his will. He's got a plan. Psalms tells us, blessed is the death of God's saints in his eyes. So when, when his people die, God says, it's a blessing. They've, they've come home. You know, what else do you want? They're, they're now with me. 
You know, how sad do you want to be when they've died and come, come to me? You know, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For us as Christians, the moment we die, we are in God's presence. Now, the lost are waiting for judgment, and they are, their soul descends into hell, and then they will end up coming to stand before God at the white throne judgment. But we get to stand before God and get our rewards from Jesus and see, start seeing heaven and whatever, whatever that is involving and, and meeting people and greeting people. Uh, but Jonathan, Saul, and two others of his sons, Abinadab and Mechishal, are going to die in this battle. And when, you're, when your main leaders die, that discourages the army in a big way. Which is one of the reasons in most battles, generals, do, generals in modern day do not go into battle. Because when a, when, if the general is taken out in the battle, it's a blow to the people. You know, they're encouraged while he's there charging around and, and you know, being brave in the gunfire. But if he goes down, it's a really big deal. Uh, Civil War is full of generals who died in the battles or just before battles and whole the morale of the people go down. And we're going to see here the morale of the people gets terrible, you know, goes terribly down because the king is dead. And uh, verse 3 says, the battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him. And notice that it says archers, plural. Uh, so he is actually probably being very several arrows in him. Uh, and this is, this is a typical thing. It's to attack leaders. And it happened a lot in those days. For a while in Europe, it stopped happening because all the royal houses were intermarried and everything. So most armies did not attack the, the generals of the army because you'd be killing your, your cousin or your, or your uncle or, you know, uh, second or third cousin. So they got to the place where the armies attacked the people, but not the generals. Uh, the Swiss and the Re uh, German mercenaries were about the only ones that would attack leader, uh, generals and, and leaders. And America, we br violated the rules of war and we shot, we shot the officers. We made, we made the, the English officers get off their horses, take off all their pretty, pretty jewelry. <laughs> You know, and, and quit being the target. Because we understood that if we could kill the officers, it would take them nine months to get another officer to replace, replace their officers. So we, we had this penchant for shooting officers. Uh, we, changed, we changed things. Because <laughs> we very quickly started going back to the way it was in the past. You, you, you went to get the king. You, you, you wanted the king. You wanted the general dead. Because if you could get them done, the army would be dispirited. And here, the archers are aiming. You could almost picture the whole, whole battalion of archers. That's Saul, get him. Yeah, he's a good target. He's, he's, a good target. he's on his horse or in his char, you know, whatever it is that he's in. Uh, and he's making a good target and he's being hit by, by archers. And I just want you to note that. You know, it's, it's not just one arrow that took Saul out. You know, at least two. And I believe it was probably much more than that. He's, you can almost picture the heroic, you know, the picture in the movies of the heroic guy with eight or nine arrows in him, you know, 
trying to trying to swing his sword as he's as he's falling, you know, bleeding bleeding out. Um, and verse four says, and Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. So Saul commits suicide. All right. Uh, now, one thing to note, just because God says Saul committed suicide does not mean God approves of Suicide, and this is something we want to bring out in the Bible. The Bible tells us what happens. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't necessarily approve or disapprove of certain things that happen. It just says these things happen. Uh, when Tar Tamar, uh, when uh, you know, when Tamar gets raped later on in, in in Second Samuel, it's not saying that that was a good thing. When David didn't do anything about it, it's not saying it was good that David didn't do anything about it. It just shows the problems that family had going on. And so here we see Saul in despair. Okay. He knows that when he, if he's found on the field alive, he's going to be hauled off and made a spectacle of, uh, you know, abused, as he said. Uh, the sad thing is, even though when they find the dead body of the king on there, they're going to abuse it too. And we're going to see that is what happens in this chapter. They're going to abuse the body of Saul. Uh, but, you know, Saul is going, I can't defend myself anymore. I don't want to be taken captive. Because it was a big deal. If you could take the, captive, the king captive, you could humiliate him. You could, you know, uh, make a spectacle of him. And... From everything we've been able to tell, Saul is a proud man. The last thing he'd want to do is be made a spectacle of. Uh, and yet, this is exactly what would happen if you read the histories. You know, a king is a king is conquered and usually stripped and and drugged behind everything and made to walk back, which is bad enough. A king walking, uh, and they would chain him and and usually run a ring and chain through their nose and drag them around by the, by the nose and uh, eventually blind them and all these other things that they would do to them and just make them a spectacle. You know, we were victorious. This king was not strong enough to keep us from being the conqueror is what they're saying. And they would do the same thing if they got hold of an idol. They would parade that idol around saying, you know, look at this. Their God wasn't stronger than our God. And, you know, we talked about that back in uh, the beginning of this chapter, you know, the beginning of this when, when uh, the Ark of the Covenant went into battle and was conquered by the Philistines and how they tried to, you know, put it on display and found out that that wasn't a good thing to do because God, in judging his people, wasn't saying your God's stronger. It says, I'm just using you to discipline my people. Saul doesn't recognize he's being used to be disciplined. He has not been following God. He has been rejected. The Philistines do not re recognize that they are being used by God to discipline Israel. They think they're doing this all on their own and they're being victorious and all of this. And you know, we need to be able to look at our life sometimes and say, God, do, do I deserve what you're going, what, what I'm going through? And we've talked about this. When we go through what, what seems to be hard times, our very first thought needs to be, 
am I living in sin and do I deserve what's, going, what's coming my way? If I do, I repent. God, I apologize. I've done wrong. Forgive me. And I live through the consequences that God is bringing my direction. If I don't or I can't think of anything, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? <laughs> and be ready to listen to what he's trying to teach. Uh, because he's trying to teach us, no matter what's going on, he's going to teach us. Even if we deserve it, he's teaching us. And it'll be used for good. And this is the most interesting thing that even if I mess up my life in a big way, it's my fault. I have done really dumb things. I have, I have sent God still the promises for all things work together for good. Okay? Even if I am the cause of all the bad things happening to me, God is going to work good out of that circumstance. Now, it may take a while. I may have to go through a lot of years of consequence, but God will work something good out of it. And, you know, we need to keep that in mind because so often I'll hear people go, well, you know, I really messed up. I, you know, I, you know, I did everything wrong. There's no way God can make good happen out of this or, that, or even worse, God would never do good out of this because it's all my fault. Wrong. His grace says you're going to get good from it. His mercy says I will pull back the years that have been destroyed by, by the locusts and all. And this is why it's so important to be able to look at this. You know, we need to be able to look and say, God, you are just, you are good, and you are in control. Because anytime we think that I've done something so bad that nothing good can come about it, boy, that puts me in a very strong place, doesn't it? I'm stronger than God. Now, most people don't really think it through all that way, but that is really what we're saying. I have been so bad that God cannot fix my life says, God, I am, so str I am stronger than you, and you are weak. You can't fix something that I have messed up. God created the whole heaven and earth out of nothing. You know, he could fix whatever we have in our life that we've messed up. And this is the thing that Saul is looking at. I don't want to be abused. I don't want to be humiliated. You know, sword bearer, you know, kill me. Sword bearer refuses, you know, because it's not right to kill your, kill your leader. So Saul falls upon his sword, and drives the sword through, his, through himself. You know, uh, I don't think he literally just fell on the sword, but he just picked the sword up and drove it into, into the cavity of his heart or area to, to kill himself. And Saul's going to die. You know, he doesn't want to be abused. He's also seen his, his three oldest sons die, which is going to be bad enough, he, and he doesn't want to be abused. And then it says, and when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on his sword. <laughs> okay, my master's dead, I'm going to die. I don't really understand this other than it is showing his loyalty and love to his, to his uh, Lord. Now, Saul, I've served you well. I, I, if you're going to die this way, I'm going to die with you. Kind of like when you remember when Jonathan said to his armor bearer, shall we go up to this fortress and see what's happened in his armor bearers? Whatever you want to do. You know, you want to go up there? I'm willing to go with you. We die, we die if, you know, uh, we die together. And this was the, the level of, of uh, love and, and honor that was given by most good armor bearers. They really did love the night that they served, and they were willing to die for them 
and help them in a battle. Because these people were event, you know, teaching them. It was a very elevated position to be the armor bearer. right? Because the armor bearer was a, really a nobody. They were a peasant in most cases. And all of a sudden, they get to go and be around all the parties. They get good food. They get, they get luxurious con, uh, living conditions. They, you know, they don't get to sleep in the best tent, but they get a better tent than they would have had at home. They get to eat better food than they would have had at home. They get to be around the royalty and the other knights. It's a very important position. And a good knight took care of his armor bearer and page and squire and all the people that, that worked around them because those are the ones that in the middle of a battle would run out with a new weapon to replace the one that they lost. You know, it would be right there for them. And this armor bearer obviously loved Saul. He's not going to depart Saul even with Saul having committed suicide and just joined Saul in that, in that point. And uh, it de definitely just shows that love that he had. Now, the other extreme might have been that he would have stood over the body of Saul until protecting it until he got killed by the enemy. That would have been the other extreme, the other extreme that most armor bearers would have done. Okay, my master's dead. I'm going to protect his body until the battle's over so we can go bury it. Uh, this one, in, in this case, either the battle was so poor against them that he saw no hope of protecting Saul's body and just killing himself, or he just didn't trust himself to be the, the weapon, holding the weapon. And it could be either one. It doesn't tell us. Uh, but he kills himself to die with his, with his, his lord. And then it says, just as an, as an overarching statement in verse 6, So Saul died, his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all of his men, and that same day together. And this all of the men refers to his direct bodyguard. Okay? Now he's losing a lot of the army as well. But the king, and remember we talked about this, David was going to be, for Achish, part of this all of his men. He was going to be put in the bodyguard. And every king that went to battle had a bodyguard. The ones that you had to get through them, and they were the best of the best. Okay, the king took the best soldiers. He goes, you know, and, and most people wanted him to have the best soldiers. You know, he's going to be surrounded by 20, 30, you know, 40 men, and it's going to be, their job was, the king doesn't die. If the king dies and you walk away, you're going to die. And that's how serious it was. It's kind of almost kind of like our secret service that are there to take the bullet for the president or the vice president. They are, they're trained to jump in front of that, that person, their guardian. That was these guys, the bodyguard, the, the, the main guard for the king, the king's guard a lot of times, or the royal guard they were called. Uh, and they were trained. You know, you're going to protect the king at all cost. So they're already in trouble because the king has taken a lot of arrows. And there's not much they could have done about that. Uh, Archer shot from a distance. But it says, Saul, his sons, his armor bearer, and all of his bodyguard are dead. And he's losing other people all around him. The, this, this battle is not going well for Israel. They are being routed, which means they're running away. All right? They're not, nobody is standing up against this against this uh, Philistine army. They are being routed. They're running. They're, they're panicking. Uh, and in verse 7, 
it's, it says, and when the men of Israel that were in the, on the other side of the valley and that they that were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. This is saying the reserve. The reserve that should have come into battle ran. All right. Uh, we're, we're getting beat so bad, we're not going to even stick around. And this happens in battles oftentimes. Uh, if you study the history of, of wars, more people run and hide in, even in modern day battles than actually get hurt in the battles. And there's lots of times where lots of people get hurt. But in most battles, a larger percent run. They just get too afraid. And it makes sense, especially if there's a route going on, and this is a route. These guys are, everywhere you look, Israel's being defeated. And the reserve on two different sides that could have been coming in on two different sides of this battle disappear, saying, we're not going to be part of this. Uh, we don't care. The king, the king is dead. We're losing. The general, the main generals are dead. We're not, nothing's going right. We're just disappearing. We're leaving our cities. And the Philistines take the Israelite cities in that section of the Israelite, Israel. And this is a major downfall. You know, Israel is not used to losing battles. Remember, all through this book, King Saul is getting just enough grace from God to win. He hears that the Philistines are attacking. He goes and runs over and, and wins a battle and drives the Philistines back. This time, the Philistines have called everybody. They're going to go, we are going to win this battle. This isn't a skirmish. This isn't, uh, this isn't a short thing. We are going to win this battle and take this area. And they do. This is a defeat for Israel. It's going to be one that's going to have to be reconquered. They, they're losing cities. And remember, this is a big deal to lose a city in that day and time because the cities were built around water supplies. You know, uh, and the cities were walled. And they were not easy to take back. Uh, we don't really comprehend this idea of a walled city being that great a defense because we just parachute people in or fly them, fly them over or lob the artillery right over the, right over the walls or even dynamite the walls. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't think of walls as being that big a deal. Walls in this day and age were a huge deal. And they've lost their cities. Verse 8. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Gil Gilboa and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines all around about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Astora and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan and, the inhabitant, and when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that, that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall at Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. 
All right, so we find out here in verse 8. And it came to pass on the morrow that the Philistines came to strip the slain. And this is the whole idea. Remember, we've talked about this several places. The pay for going to war for these soldiers was that they got to strip anything of value from the fallen. And that included both sides. It didn't matter. If they were dead laying in the field, you got to take whatever they had. Armor, swords, jewelry, you know, gold, silver. I don't know why these guys carried gold and silver into battle, but we read accounts where they get, you know, tons of, you know, jewels and stuff. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing when we read these things. If you remember that uh, uh, Gideon went to battle and he, he took just the earrings and was able to make an idol and a, and a great golden ephod and everything, you know, and it said that it was 30 or 40 shekels of earrings of gold. You know, I just don't understand why these guys came in bringing their wealth with them to go into battle. Uh, part of it was to show I'm important or something. I don't know. But I would have left my wealth at home in case I died. My family at least would have my wealth. But that's not what they did back then. <laughs> they weren't thinking about their families when they went to battle. They were coming in, let me, let me see how great I am. I've got, I've got all these fine garments and weapons and and all this wealth on me, I'm, an, I'm important. And weren't thinking about their families and what was going to happen to their families when, you know, if they died. They were just had their own pride to lift up. And they came across the body of Saul and, and his sons. You know, how did they know that they were Saul and their sons? Well, there would be the crowns. They would be the royal garments. Uh, you know, all the attributes of being, being a royalty. Uh, because royalty never goes any place without all the affluence that goes along with it. Um, our, our president you know, doesn't go anywhere without his you know, affluence. The vice president doesn't go anywhere. I mean, just when you, when you, have, your, when you have your position, you go with everything. You, you know, and part of it is you're, you're representing your country, so you, it's on purpose. You know, you're, you're going with, you know, the you know, last thing you want to do is see your leader come out dressed in, in, in uh, blue jeans that have rips and tears in them that are full of mud, you know, and a sweaty t-shirt because they've been working out in the garden and they go to, they go to the, uh, meet the uh, head of another state, another country. That's just not what you want. That's not the picture you want, you know. You, you kind of like the picture of your, your leader going out and doing real labor once in a while, but you don't want them going to meet a foreign dignitary that way. And that's, they're going into battle. And they go in decked out, and they're going to recognize this is Saul. These are his sons. And they do exactly what Saul was afraid of. They're going to now abuse his body. I don't really fully understand all of this. I mean, the body is a body. Once the spirit's out of it, the body is nothing. And yet, the Philistines are going to abuse the body of Saul. And it says, they cut his head off and stripped his armor off. Now, stripping his armor off, that would have been pretty normal. Cutting his head off, that's pretty abusive. They're, they're going to you know, uh, show this. But you know, who else cut off a head in, after a battle? David. David. You know, the first thing he did after Goliath fell is he ran over, took Goliath's sword, and cut Goliath's head off and stood in the middle of the field basically saying, I have triumphed, and this is what they're going to be doing with Saul's head. 
Yeah, look at this. We, we, we took the king of Israel out. He's been holding his own. Whenever they raid him, he, he comes in with the army, drives them back. This one is gone completely against him. But this is not just a raiding party. This is not just a foraging party, you know, trusting him. This is the entire might of the Philistines. Because remember, many, two or three chapters ago, we said the entire Philistines gathered together for this battle. They're, they're coming with hundreds of thousands to, to fight this battle. They are not, they are coming to, for, they were looking for a decisive battle. This is going to be finished one way or the other. We're going to be done with Israel or we're going to be done. And in this case, they pretty much do away with Israel, at least the middle section of it there where Mount Gilboa is. Um, See, they cut off his head, they take his armor, and then it says they send into the land of Philistine around about to publish it in the houses of their idols and among their people. What that means in real simple terms, they sent out dispatch messengers. <laughs> Go tell him we got the king of Israel, he's dead. And a matter of fact, we got his three sons. And where were they telling it? Wherever they went, but specifically they were to go to the temples. Why the temples? Because everybody eventually went to the temples. It's a good place to get your message out. Uh, in early America, if you wanted to get a message out, you went to the church. You made sure the message was out, out, out of the church because eventually, virtually everybody went to the church. Uh, at least on the colonial days. Um, during the older days, maybe you did it to the bar. I don't know. This is the one. I'm not sure where you went in during the Western days, but, but in the early days of America, you went to the church because we were a righteous people. People ended up in church, and it was a great way to get the news out. And so here they're sending their runners and going, everywhere you go, tell them that, that Saul is dead and his three sons are dead, and we have conquered, we have, we have conquered Israel. We have, taken, we have defeated their God would have been the message that they were being told. Okay. Because remember, every time these countries went to battle back in that day, it wasn't just the country against country. It was the god of that country against the god of the other country. And the idea was when, if we won the battle, our god gave us victory over the god of that other, battle, the other country who should have had enough strength to keep them from losing if he was strong. Which takes us back into, remember we talk about this a lot, in the... Ten plagues of Egypt, God was battling and showing all your gods are worthless, Egypt. Your, 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 your god of the sun, Ra, he can't keep it from being dark for three days. Uh, you know, your god of the Nile can't, keep the, can't get the blood away. Your god of the crops can't keep me from destroying your crops. Your, your weather gods can't stop me from sending bad weather. Plague after plague was against the various gods of Israel. And this was the thing that happened when you went to battle. Uh, there's a, can't remember where it was in the, in the book of Joshua, but there was a, a tribe that said, in the, you know, that, well, the God, their God defeated the God of the, of the valley, but our God's the God of the mountain. They can't defeat us. And God went, went ahead and defeated them. Okay, but that was the mentality of the people. My God is stronger than your God until it's proved otherwise. And if we win, our God is stronger than yours. Which is why when God lets these people defeat Israel as a punishment, they celebrate. You know, our God is stronger. They're, they're, you know, and, it, and it's kind of an interesting thing. 
How many of us as Christians worry so much about our testimony to the exclusion of God being lifted up? God is willing to let him, his testimony die for a period of time because the Israelites needed to be punished. And he's going, to lift his, he's going to lift his testimony back up. God will do the same thing. And I've seen Christians do crazy things because they were so afraid of their testimony being harmed. Not from anything they do. I mean, it's, if you're doing something and your testimony is being harmed, then, then that's one thing. Uh, but let's say you're falsely accused of something. I've seen Christians go to battle to defend their, to defend their testimony and really do more damage to their testimony in their battling to keep their testimony than they would have been if they had just been quiet and let God bend their defense. God is willing to let his, his testimony fall if it takes it. Because he knows that it's not his testimony that's falling. It's people's perception of his testimony. When these people win, he says, I haven't lost. I've just let you, I've let you have some victories because my people deserve the punishment. They don't understand it. They think, okay, we, we, we have destroyed Israel's God. Not even close. Not even close. And for us just to be quiet and let God be our defense is much better in most cases. Okay, all right, my testimony seems to be destroyed for, you know, for a period of time, but God is, God is my defender. He's going to show the innocence. He's going to show the value of that testimony and raise it up. And it's very important. Is there time to defend our testimony in our honor? Yes. But be very careful because I think they're fewer and farer between than most of us think they are. Uh, because God defends. God protects. And if we're defending somebody else, that's one thing. You know, I've said this over and over. If you're defending somebody else, you can be angry and not sin when you're angry and defending somebody else. You may still cross the line, but you can be angry and not sin when you're defending somebody else. If you're angry because of something that happened to you, I think it's almost impossible to be angry and not sin when you're trying to defend yourself. Because it's your own, my own pride, my own arrogance that I'm trying to protect, and it is tough. It probably can be done. Somebody will probably point somewhere in a history somewhere where it's been done, but I think it's very hard. I think it's very hard when you're trying to defend my own pride, my own honor, to not sin. Because I'm defending the wrong thing in the first place. You know, I'm defending me. And if I have to defend me, there's probably a problem. And we see here that they're whooping it up. We got, we got the king of Israel. We beat their God. Go tell it out to all the temples. And then it says they take the armor and the head of uh, the armor of, of Saul and they put it in the house of Astoroth, which is their major god, and that's one of the, one of the, the gods of, uh, of fertility. And they put his armor on display. Now, this should kind of bring some remembrance. Remember when David went to the priest and he says, do you have any weapons here? Their answer was, the only thing we have here is Saul's sword, uh, uh, Goliath's sword. Israel was not beyond doing the same thing. Okay, we, were conquer we, we conquered over them. God gave us victory over their God and their people. Let's put their stuff on display. 
So this is, this is not a, probably a good thing on either direction, but they're doing just what it, what's been done everywhere else. It's just something that was done. Our God was victorious. Let's put this stuff on display. And they take the body of Saul and they hang it on the wall of the city on the outside. Now this is a huge issue for the Jewish people because the Jewish people believe that a body needs to be buried within 24 hours. On Jesus' day, when you died, you were buried. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira died in Jerusalem in the church? It said the men went, picked up his body, wrapped it up, and they buried it because that was their routine. You had to bury the body by nightfall. and let, Actually, less than 24 hours. By nightfall, the body was to be buried. And they did the same thing to Sapphira. They buried her body as soon as she died. Well, no, there wasn't a smell. It was just they believed that the body... The Jews believed that the body is a creation of God and needs to be treated... That the body itself needs to be treated with respect, which is why... Orthodox Jews and, uh, to, to this day do not believe in cremation. They think that's destroying something that God has created. I look at it more that the body is an empty shell. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, yes, it was a wonderful thing that God created, but, you know, uh, but each person has to make their decision on that kind of on this thing. But they have taken Saul's body and they hang it on the wall. They're not allowing it to be buried. They have taken Saul's body, hung it from a wall. You, know, you think about this. You, know, you think about the grotesque things people did back then, and you know, it was normal. Uh, they take a body and hang it on the wall, probably near the gate, so that everybody can see this is King Saul of Israel, dead. We, we, we were victorious. Uh, the Romans put people on the crosses, and you know, we talk about Jesus being nailed to the cross, and that being nailed to the cross was, was when they wanted a quick death. Normally, they just tied guys to the, to the cross and hung them there tightly, tightly to the cross. It was just as bad. You know, the pain was just as bad other than the fact that they didn't run a nail through your, you know, through your nerve bundle. Uh, and they let them hang there for a week to two weeks before they passed away. You know, getting weaker and weaker and hungrier and hungrier and thirstier and thirstier and dying eventually of, of not being able to breathe. The same death. But they were a torture, the cross was a torturous death in, in most cases that was designed to last as long as possible. And it's really sad over the years, the depravity that man has done against man in learning to harm them, drag a death out as long as possible, make, make torture as, as long and grueling and painful as possible. Uh, it's one of the things you find when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of the things we did to each, you know, that they did to Christians are just abominable. And that's why it's so hard to read because you read it and go, man, would I, want, would I want my innards torn out through my, through my throat? No. And yet that's exactly what was done. Uh, people being pressed. They just kept putting weights on them until they finally died. You know, put a board on them, keep putting weights on it until they finally got compressed. They, they died of that compression. You know, and if they were really angry, they made a quick death. That was probably the easier ones. You know? uh, to be burned at the stake was not a very nice death. Because uh, being burnt is not a great, great way to do it. 
uh, as far as to die. <laughs> very painful, very slow. And so they abused his body. They hung his body up. It's bad enough they found it the next day. He's supposed to have been buried. Then they take that body and they hang it up on a wall. And verse 11 and when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, that's one of the towns in Israel, heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men of, arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall of Bashan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. All right? This is a pretty bold thing to do. Saul's body is on display saying, we're victorious. And these guys decide, we're going to take his body. You know, we're not going to let him be abused and dishonored this way. Now, they did take and burn him. They didn't, they didn't bury him. And I believe they didn't bury him. My personal belief on this is they didn't bury him because they didn't want the Philistines coming back and, and getting him out of the grave and putting him back up on the wall. They're going, we're going to put him out of your reach completely. We're going to burn the bodies. I believe they did this out of compassion so that the bodies would not be further abused. Uh, that's my speculation. Uh, it's worth what it is, which is nothing, but it's my speculation that that's what they were doing. Uh, and, they, and they burnt his body because it's against the Jewish idea to cremate a body. That's not what they do. They do it at various places, but here we're going to see they burnt his, burnt his bodies. And it says they took the bones and they buried them under a tree in Jabez and fasted for seven days. So they took the bones and buried them uh, under a tree, which means they literally buried them. Most of the time when it talks about buried in the, in the, in the Old Testament, it means put them into a cave and seal the cave. Uh, so here we have Saul dying. And one of the things that I want to just bring out when Saul dies, it is decades after God said you've lost your kingdom God does not always move as fast as we think he's going to move he does not think he does not move the way we think he's going to move and you can almost picture that Saul but after so many decades of being saying you're going to lose your kingdom might have even just got to well God's changed his mind I'm going to be okay now I still have my kingdom I've had some victories I haven't I haven't lost and he forgot, probably forgot about all of this. Now, when he dies, he's been reminded, because remember, he went to the witch of Endor for a, for a positive message, and he says, God has already taken the kingdom for you. Matter of fact, you're going to die in this battle tomorrow. All right? Reminding him, God has already said, you know, the prophecy was you, the, your kingdom's been taken from you. It may have taken decades to get here, but God makes it happen. And it's the same type of thing when we look at God promises that the tribulation period is coming and that Jesus Christ is coming back to take his bride. We've only been waiting close to 2,000 years now. And a lot of times, you know, I even hear it from Christians. Well, why even talk about this stuff? You know, God, you know it's 2,000 years ago. It hasn't happened yet. Probably isn't going to happen. Wrong. <laughs> you know, when God delays, he has a reason. He had a reason. He needed to set up a situation for Jonathan to die and, and the, the, more, the oldest sons of King David, uh, King Saul. He had to get David ready to be king and learn to trust. Now, can you imagine the arrogance that David had in the previous part and what kind of king David would have made until God 
did the things that he needed to do to David. Many times when God says, I've got a job for you to do and this is what you're going to do, he spends our lifetime teaching us to be ready for that job, ready for whatever it is that God's got in store for us. I think of George Mueller, learned, taking a lifetime to learn prayer. He did not start running the orphanages until he was fairly old. Okay, He was not a young man when he started running these orphanages and, and dealing with you know, what we would today call millions of dollars a month. God says, I want you to learn. He went to a church, and the way they paid their pastors in, in those days was they, they, they sold the pews. You rented the pews. You didn't even sell it. You rented the pew each month. And that money for your pew went to the pastor. But it was your pew. Whether you were in it or not, nobody else could sit in your pew. And so if you were a good-sized church, you know, it's like, you know, here, okay, pastor, here's your money. Here's your rental for the pews. He went into the church and decided, no, that's not trusting God. And he says, no more, no more renting the pews. I'll take whatever they put in the box, you know, the, the, the box for the pastor. And that, that shocked the church. But it was his first step in learning to trust God. You know, told his wife she had too much stuff. She had to get rid of it. She brought her dowry in with all of her dishes and fancy stuff. And he looked around and, and had a heart attack. No, we can't live that way. You know, it's... You've got to get rid of all this stuff. This is not the way, you know, the way we're going to live for God. We'd be tempted to sell this stuff if things get hard. Made her get rid of everything. He learned over a period of time to be more and more trusting to God. God does the same thing with us. He prepares us for what he wants us to do over a period of time. Sometimes a lot of missteps in the process. And sometimes a lot of good things in the process but he teaches us. And every part of what we go through is to make us who we are. I've heard people, well, if I could go back, I would change such and such about myself. You know, if I could go back, I wouldn't want to change anything about myself because if I, was, if I changed something, I wouldn't be who I am today. And usually we think, well, I'd get rid of this really bad experience. Well, that bad experience is what gave you the strength to get through other problems. And if you didn't have that experience, you would have failed in these other problems and you would definitely not be the person you are today. We need to be careful when we look at our life and say, God, you made a bunch of mistakes in my life. You let things happen that are bad for me because really that's what we're saying. If I would say, I would go back and change this, we're saying, God, you didn't know what you were doing. You know, you allowed things to happen that have no reason being there. We need to be careful when we think, these things, think about these things. God has a reason. Why do some people get saved when they're 10 and another person gets saved when they're 80? I don't know. God knows what's going on and he knows why. You know, why do some people have a miraculous change in their life that everything in their life when they get saved gets changed overnight and other people like myself are slow and you know, maybe not even steady, but slow. <laughs> you know, having to be beat over the head every time I turn around. You know, I don't know. Uh, one thing I do know is a lot of people who get saved you know, and changed instantly don't have a lot of compassion for people who don't get that same experience. They don't have a lot of mercy. They don't have a lot of grace. They go, God did it to me. Why, why didn't he do it to you? you know, I don't know. I don't know why God does anything that he does. He, he, didn't, he didn't hire me to be his advisor. And I'm not, def I'm not even his confidant. He goes, you know, I just want to tell you, this is what I'm going to do, and this is why I'm going to do it. 
God does not use humans as his confidant. He doesn't use angels as his confidant. Might tell the Son and the Holy Spirit what he's doing, but that would be the only people that would know the why of what he's doing. You know, let me just tell you, son, because that was part of what we know happened. The son agreed to be the sacrifice before the foundation of the earth. So there was some kind of conversation going, we're going to create man, they're going to, they're going to sin, and Jesus, I want you to die for them. And the Holy Spirit, you get to fill the ones that accept Jesus as their Savior, and you get to change who they are to be more like us, which is what they started with at the very beginning before Adam and Eve sinned. You know, and all of that was going on, and they talked to each other, talked to each other, and had intimate relationships with each other to to know what was going on. But nobody else has that intimate relationship to know why God's doing what He's doing. He just doesn't, you know, He doesn't deem it important to tell us why. We're the created being. He's the King, the sovereign King of the universe, and He basically says, "I'll just do things my way. If I want to cause pain to this person." It's for, it'll be for the good of the kingdom and I'll cause pain. You know, Paul tells us that you know, the potter makes vessels for the honorable and the dishonorable. He makes pot, you know, dishes that go on the dinner table and he makes dishes that go into the bathroom. <laughs> and both have their purpose and both are needed. You're not going to take the dish from the bathroom and put it on the dinner table. You might take the one from the dinner table and eventually put it in the bathroom, but it will never make the return trip uh, you know, back to the dinner table, especially clay dishes. Uh, God does what he wants. He creates us to be what he wants us to be. And several places in the, in the prophets, they'll talk about God being the potter and us being the clay and saying he'll make out of us what he wants to make out of us. And if you've ever seen somebody at the spinning wheel, you know, making pottery, they get it, it's looking really good, really good, and then all of a sudden they get a flaw in it and they just crush the whole thing. And start all over again. Because it didn't make what they wanted it to make. And God can do that with us. Making a nice, beautiful vase, 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 and then there's a crack. <laughs> crush, crush the thing, because the crack, is, crack has made it worthless. And start all over again. And we're going, God, can't you get it right? I, I'm, you know, well, if you would quit moving, we probably could get it right. But, uh, but, you know, God is sovereign and he's got a plan. And I love that he has a plan. That gives me so much peace that God is in control. Satan has to ask for permission. Now, I would wish that God wouldn't give Satan as much permission as he does sometimes. But I know that God has a plan and that he knows what he's doing and it's going to be a good plan. In spite of the fact that I would wish that, okay, God, you know, you know why did you let Satan kill all of Job's children, God? That just seems kind of harsh. What did the children ever do to deserve to die, you know, while you're teaching Saul, uh, Job a lesson? Well, they got to go to heaven, yes. Uh, you know, and he got to have seven, uh, nine more children. I feel sorry for... Mrs. Job, she had to have, you know, another nine kids at a much older age. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we look at this and say, sometimes we just look at God and say, God, I just don't understand this, and that's good. If we could understand everything that God does, we would be God, and he would not be God. So it is good that we don't understand what God does. It is good that we don't understand why he does what he does. 
It is good that there are things in the scripture that we just don't fully understand. Something as simple as the Trinity. And I say simple because it's very clearly taught in the Bible and we don't understand it at all. You know, and whenever I teach on the Trinity, I have an opening statement. We're going to show you what the verses say about the Trinity and we're going to prove to you that there is such a thing as a Trinity and that God's word talks about the Trinity and you're not going to understand it any better when we get done than when we started. It is definitely a faith thing. God says it's there. He's three in one. They're one. And we don't understand it. And every time we try to understand it, we draw these pictures of nature and the body and everything, we still don't get it. You know, we look at our bodies. We are three in one. But as soon as you start disassembling our bodies and make us into different pieces, we're no longer one. Okay, we'll point to the egg. That's a, a shell, a yolk, and an egg. Break that egg, you no longer have one, and you can't make it back together again. Uh, so we, we've got to understand that all the pictures of the, of the Trinity fall apart. We see pictures of the Trinity all over God's creation. You know, we see pictures of it, you know, uh, the state of matter is in, you know, solid, liquid, and, and gas. You know, we see, we see all kinds of pictures of God's Trinity stamped upon creation. But all of them break down because, you know, you can't have something that's solid, liquid, and gas at the same time. Okay, you can have it between gas and, you know, and liquid and liquid and, and solid. You can have that intermediate stage where it's kind of a little bit of both. But you can't have all three of them. And so we have all of the pictures of the Trinity that fall apart. And I'm glad that we can't fully understand everything in the Bible because if I can understand everything that's in the Bible, I have a worthless book. I have a book that's not beyond my understanding. If it's not beyond my understanding, it's not worth anything because it's not a divine book written by a divine being that deserves all worship and is all sovereign and is so much above us. And this is important for us to understand because sometimes people will criticize us as Christians saying, well, this book is just too hard to understand. Thank you. I'm glad it is. Well, that Trinity thing, I just can't understand it. Join the club. I can't either, and I'm glad that I can't. Well, why would God die for people? I have no idea. You know, I have no idea why God would die for mankind. I'm glad he did. But I have no idea why he would. I don't even know why he would create us in the first place knowing that we were going to, to sin. None of this stuff makes sense to me as a human being because we wouldn't do it. You know, when we see it from the other side, maybe we'll understand a little bit of it. I don't even know that we'll understand it in heaven. We'll just be happy to be there and we'll still be wondering, God, why, I don't know why you, why you wanted us here. Because we get everything and he gets us. And I've, just, I've never thought that that was a really good deal. I'm glad about that deal. Believe me, I am ecstatic about that deal. God gives us everything, all the riches of heaven, and in return, he gets us. And that doesn't sound like a good deal to me. But yet God did it. There's something in it that he thinks was a good deal. And I don't know what it is. Uh... And it's only because he's God that he can see anything good in that deal because I don't see anything good in that deal. But by the same token, when, when do we normally feel the best is when we give to somebody that cannot give back. When we just help somebody for the sake of helping it. 
Maybe that's that little glimpse of what God sees in buying us back. You know, well, you have nothing to give me, so I'm buying you. I'm giving you everything. And that is usually when we feel the best is when we just give to somebody, invite them to dinner or whatever, knowing that there's no way they're ever going to return, give them some nice clothing or helping them. You know, that's where the true giving comes and the real feeling good comes from. And it may be just when, you know, our sight, that little glimpse, you know. But again, I just don't understand why God would have set himself up to have to do it. Uh, but he is God. All right, we have finished First Samuel. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. Lord, we, we are so sorry that Saul had to die for, your, for David to become king, but you knew what was happening, and you're, you were in charge. You are sovereign. And we, Lord, just the picture of the men of Jabesh Gilead that just loved Saul enough to risk everything to, to give him an honorable burial and rescue his body. Lord, help us learn to love you more, to serve you more, to serve others, and just learn to be thankful for all that you've done. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.